If you want to follow the text of this momentous passage, um, you can turn to page 1249 in the Red Bibles um, in, in the pew in front of you. Um, Revelation chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, now the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. He who overcomes will inherit all this, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters and all liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain, great and high, and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God, and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates, and with twelve angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the twelve tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three on the south, and three on the west. The wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. This is the word of the Lord.
And we continue just over the page on, on page 1,250. Chapter 22, starting at verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as cr clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. The angel said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. The Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show his servants the things that must soon take place. Behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy in this book. Thanks be to God. As we stand, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that as we think about living with you in your house forever, you would thrill us from your word. In Jesus' name. Amen. Do please be seated. Life is a climb, but the view is great. Now, I have to confess, I never thought I'd begin a sermon with a quotation from the singer Miley Cyrus. But as we reach the last two chapters of the book of Revelation we do get this great view. And if you've been with us through the 14 sermons so far through the book of Revelation, first of all, well done, and uh, well done for hanging on with us right to the end. But also, if you've been through these 14 sermons, you'll know that it has been a bit of a climb and that the major theme of Revelation that is that life is a climb, that life is tough. Thank you very much. Well done. Life is tough, but the lamb wins. And we've had that theme running throughout uh, the book of Revelation. And here today, we see the wonderful ultimate victory, not just of the lamb, but of all his followers. As we'll see, the bride of the lamb, too, shares in that victory. And by way of introduction, I want to focus on three areas of struggle that we all face. Um, there's an outline on the, uh, the purple notice sheet on the back of that. And uh, if you're a note taker, um, or you're the kind of person who nods off during sermons, you might find the outline helpful. And we're going to look at how the great view that we get from the mountaintop as we uh, stand with John metaphorically on the top of the mountain and look at this view of heaven in Revelation 21 and 2, we'll see how that helps us going now whilst life is tough. The first struggle that we have is in the whole area of security. Security in the sense of financial provision. Will I be able to provide for my family? Will my pension see me through? Will there be a pension? 
not if you work for the Church of England, uh, will I ever be able to buy a house? And if I own a house, will I be able to protect it from moth and rust and thieves who break in and steal? But also security in the sense of safety. We spend plenty of time and money installing extra locks and alarm systems. We look at that dodgy bloke sitting across us on the tube. We worry as we check in at Heathrow. Security in the sense of safety and also security in terms of future planning. Concerns for our family, our children, maybe the state of the world just geopolitical instability. So whether it's financial provision or personal safety or fear of the future, security is a big struggle for many of us. A second thing that we struggle with is relationships. Homo sapiens is a social being. We're designed to be in relationship with one another. I'll never forget my daughter returning from her first day at school, aged four and a half, And I asked her to do something for me. It was something pretty reasonable, like have a bath or wipe her feet on the mat. I can't remember what it was. But she resisted and then said, you're not my friend anymore. (laughs) I still remember it all these years later. What did you learn from your first day at school, darling? I learned that people will reject you. And I learned how to reject others. That's the new phrase she came back with from day one at school. You're not my friend anymore. I'm glad to say she quickly got over it and we are still good friends. But sadly, it's not always the case. I wish my son would phone me just for a few minutes every week. I wish my daughter would call by occasionally. I'm so lonely living on my own. Will I ever find Mr. or Miss Wright? How do I cope in my empty marriage? A husband who won't talk to me, or a wife who's too preoccupied with the kids. We crave intimacy, and often it's an elusive struggle. The average Facebook user apparently has 150 friends. Yet a recent survey amongst men showed that 45% of men said that there was no one they felt they could call up at 2 o'clock in the morning if they had a particular problem. And as well as security and relationships, a third area where many of us struggle is the whole area of fulfillment. One of the reasons we spend so much time and money on security and in relationships is in our constant search for fulfillment and satisfaction. I was reminded this week of a a famous interview given by Keith Richards of the Rolling Stones with with Elle magazine. It was a few years ago now, but they'd just come off their their most successful tour where they'd grossed $80 million. Uh, Mick Jagger, the leader of the Rolling Stones, had houses in New York, Richmond, the Loire, and mystique. Uh, He's a friend of the rich. This is Keith Richards speaking. He's a friend of the rich, titled, famous, and even royalty. He has fame, money, and influence. 
And Keith Richards said 99% of the world would give a limb to live the life of Mick Jagger or to be Mick Jagger. But the interesting thing is he's not happy being Mick Jagger. And the article concluded, many years after the Stones' most defining moment in song, the one certain thing about Mick Jagger is that he can't get no satisfaction. For all that he possesses, for all that he's done, he tries, and he tries, and he tries, and he tries. So we may struggle with security, with relationships, with fulfillment, or maybe there are other struggles. And the book of Revelation was written for struggling Christians. And the two major struggles that they face, which incorporate these struggles that we've looked at, First, tribulation, we looked at that a couple of weeks ago where we were reminded in Revelation chapters 12 to 14 that we're engaged in a spiritual battle. And secondly, for these first Christians, first century Christians and indeed for ourselves, trivialization. So tribulation and trivialization. And we thought of that as we looked at chapters 17 and 18 where the prostitute, the whore of Babylon, tried to entice the faithful away with her alluring charms. And we too live in a world full of trivial fripperies. Just need to read the newspaper, look at the adverts, look at the supplements, flick through the TV channels for a couple of hours to see how trivial our world is and how seduced we are by it. We can't get no satisfaction. Now, in Revelation chapter 4, verse 1, We read this. After this, I, that's John, looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. If you remember Revelation, or the word apocalypse, which is the English translation of that, literally means the drawing back of a curtain. And God, as it were, draws back the curtain of heaven and says, Have a look, John. Take a peek. And in chapters 4 and 5, John sees Jesus triumphant on the throne of heaven, the Lamb who's conquered. Chapter 6, we see all sorts of famine, plague, oppression, and death. So that by chapter 6, verse 10, we read, They cried out in a loud voice, this is the Christian believers, How long, sovereign Lord? How long? But the message of Revelation is that Jesus has won. He is coming soon. And one of the great incentives in Christian living is to know that Jesus has won and he is coming soon. And that when he comes, there will be a perfect society free of those struggles. Now, chapters 17 to 20 are particularly bleak chapters. I'm very grateful to you for coming back for more after all that. So when we come to these two chapters, 21 and 22, they should fill us with extra joy as we look at the prospect of heaven. Now, Jesus uh, uh, gives John three visions of this wonderful new creation in these two chapters. 
And we're going to look at the three visions, which are the holy city, the bride, and the garden, all symbolic of what heaven has in store for the Christian believer. So first, let's look at the holy city, chapter 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. And the emphasis here is on security. He picks it up again in the verses following verse 10. Verse 10 says, He carried me away by, in the Spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Now, in the Old Testament, Jerusalem is a symbol of safety and security. It's known as Zion, the city of God. And at the heart of the city is the temple, the place where God dwelt, a place of security. So we read in Psalm 48, verse 12, Walk about Zion, go round her, count her towers, consider well her ramparts, view her citadels, that you may tell them to the next generation. And then Psalm 122, famous psalm about Jerusalem. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May those who love you be secure. May there be peace within your walls and security within your citadels. Psalm 125, verse 1. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be shaken, but endures forever. And here in Revelation 21, verses 10, right the way through to the end of the chapter, John emphasizes all the architectural features that build up this symbol of security. So, verse 11, it shone with the glory of God and with precious jewels. Verse 21, the streets are paved with gold. Verse 12, it had a great high wall with 12 gates and 12 angels at the gates. It's a secure city. Verse 16 tells us that the city was 12,000 stadia long and wide and high. It was a cube. 1,500 miles. It's like here to Moscow. It's big. This is obviously a vision. It's a dream. It's a picture. But you get the symbolism. It's big. It's secure. The walls are unbelievably thick. Twelve angels on the gates. No one can get in. They're building at Chelsea Barracks near where I live. And, uh, of course, they've put up gates because it's going to be high-end accommodation. They don't want the riffraff like me going in there. The gates are there. The cameras are there. The security code is there already. And they're still laying the foundations. It's secure, this city. And the reference in verse 12 to the 12 tribes of Israel refers to the nucleus of the Old Testament people of God. And in verse 14 to the 12 apostles, the nucleus of the New Testament people of God. The holy city is not just secure, but complete. All God's people will be there. And if we trust in Christ, our future is secure. Now, I don't know if you identified with any of those things of security I mentioned at the beginning. 
I guess we all struggle with it from time to time, but hey, isn't it wonderful to know that we have a secure future in heaven? Jesus said to his disciples, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. Then he concludes by saying this, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Perhaps it's good to ask ourselves this morning, where is my heart? Where is my treasure? Life may be a climb, but what of you? The second vision that John has of the new creation is of the beautiful bride. And the emphasis here is on intimacy. Back in chapter 19, verse 6, just a page back, we have our old friend, the Hallelujah Chorus. Look at verse 6 of chapter 19. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder, shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. Why? For the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. This is the marriage of the Lamb, Jesus, to his bride, the church. And the bride is ready. So we sing, hallelujah. And here in chapter 21, verse 2, we have a beautifully dressed bride meeting her husband. Verse 9, we see that the bride is the wife of the Lamb. Yes, of course, in, uh, on one level, the Christian is already in a relationship with Jesus Christ. Yes, of course, as we were thinking last week on the day of Pentecost, the Spirit of Jesus is with us today. And nothing can separate us from the love of God. That's wonderful for the Christian now, but one day we will see him face to face. It's as if we are kind of the bride who is engaged at the moment. Indeed, the Holy Spirit is called uh, the guarantee in Ephesians chapter 1. And it's the same word that is used for an engagement ring. We're sort of betrothed to Christ, but one day we'll see him face to face. Now, the Bible has absolutely no hang-ups about sex. It's quite uninhibited in its reference, references to sex. And indeed, it often uses marriage as a metaphor, as an image of God's intimate and beautiful relationship with his people. In the Old Testament, God speaks of his love for Israel in bluntly sexual terms. If you don't believe me, just have a little read of the prophet Hosea. In the New Testament, especially in Ephesians chapter 5, Jesus sees his church as his bride without wrinkle or blemish. And Paul quotes from Genesis chapter 2, the two will become one flesh. And he goes on, this is a profound mystery and I take it to mean Christ and the church. So when the Bible tries to explain to our finite, little human minds how wonderful it is to be in a close relationship with God, the best picture that it gives us is that of marriage and the sexual union 
the deepest relationship there can be. And this intimacy is reinforced, do you see, in verse 3, by reference to the covenant. Chapter 21, verse 3, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be his God. The covenant expressed throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, I will be your God, and you will be my people. And this glorious relationship is underlined by outlining some of the things that will be absent from heaven. Did you pick them up in verse 4? A favorite passage read at funerals. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. Sometimes said there are four H's that are going to be absent from heaven. No hearses, there's no death. No heartache, no mourning. No hankies, no crying. And no hospitals, no pain. The government of heaven will save a lot of money, won't they? Everything that spoils this life will be absent from heaven. And as we struggle with difficult relationships, maybe it's bereavement, maybe it's loneliness, maybe it's disappointment, maybe it's longing, frustration, whatever it is, what a comfort to know that we have this promise of a perfect relationship, of perfect intimacy with the Lord Jesus Christ. Life may be a climb now. Oh, but what a view third vision of the new creation is the garden and we're in now in chapter 22 page 1250 and the emphasis here is on joy on ecstasy on being restored to a perfect relationship with God which must mean joy the city has now been transformed into a garden with the river of life the tree of life and the throne of God. Now, I know that gardening illustrations are the signs of a middle-aged preacher, but as there are one or two other middle-aged people here around, I think you might be with me on this. I think I may be struggling a bit more this evening, but I think whether you garden or not, and whether you only have a window box as your garden in London, we all recognize a beautiful garden. And most of us love a beautiful garden, especially if the work's been done by someone else. Yesterday, Lucy and I went to Kew Gardens, and uh, it's a great time of year to enjoy the English garden. And even though it was raining uh, all afternoon and we got quite wet, it was wonderful. Just confirms my middle-aged status for you. But here in the new creation, chapter 22, we have, first of all, a river in verse 1, the river of the water of life, with crystal clear flowing water, flowing from the throne down the high street of heaven. A symbol of God's grace reaching out to all. Second, there are crops and the, the tree of life, verse 2, where the hungry may eat to their heart's content. And did you notice that the harvest doesn't just happen once a year, the harvest happens every month. 
There is fruitfulness all the time. After the fall in Genesis chapter 3, the man and the woman had been banished from the garden and the tree of life was a no-go area. Here in the new creation, that ban is lifted. And then third, the throne of God is in this garden, verse 3. And verse 4, we will see his face. Do you remember in the Old Testament, no one could look at God and live. If you saw God, you died. In the New Testament, through Jesus, we have access by faith to the Father. But one day, in the new creation, we will see him face to face. And all our longings will be fulfilled. We may struggle now with satisfaction. We may struggle with that elusive search for fulfillment. But one day, we will be able to say with the psalmist, Psalm 87 verse 7, All my springs of joy are in you. Life is a climb. Oh, but what a view. What a beautiful garden. The Bible begins with a beautiful garden in Genesis. But very quickly, the man is chucked out. Paradise lost. And here the Bible ends with a beautiful garden. And God's people are welcomed back and fed and nourished. Paradise regained. Genesis chapter 3, man was cursed. Do you see chapter, Revelation chapter 22 verse 3? No longer will there be any curse. Three wonderful visions of the new creation. The holy city, the bride, and the garden. Life is a climb, but the view is great. But the Bible doesn't just leave us with a great view. It leaves us with a promise. Look at chapter 22, verse 7. Jesus says, Behold, I am coming soon. And he repeats it, verse 12. Behold, I am coming soon. And in case we'd missed it, those first two times, verse 20, the penultimate verse in the entire book, yes, I am coming soon. Now, the Bible repeats things that are important because they didn't have bold font or size 48 type. Just repetition. And in the final verses of this whole book, we have this threefold, I am coming soon. So we need to wait patiently. Yes, we may think that 2,000 years is a long time, but it's nothing in the timetable of the eternal God. And soon doesn't necessarily mean the next few minutes. It means that in God's calendar, there is nothing booked until his return. God used to have a diary that was quite full. It had in it the birth of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, the ascension of Jesus to heaven, but he's ticked all those things off in his diary. And the next thing is that he will come again. Do you notice that in the creed? All those things we say about Jesus. Crucified, ascended, seated at the right hand of the Father Almighty. From whence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. It may seem a long wait to us. But Jesus has promised that he is coming soon. So we, we must wait patiently. Second, we must wait obediently. Verse 9. He said to me, Do not do it. I am a fellow servant with you 
and with your brothers, the prophets, and of all who keep the words of this book. We're called to keep the words of this book. Verse 10, we're called not to seal it up. In other words, called to read it. Verse 11, right at the end it says, let him who is holy continue to be holy. Let him who is right continue to do right. Sure, there will be some who remain remain determinedly, as verse 7 puts it, wrong and vile. There'll be some who persist in rejecting Jesus right up until the end. But if we're following Christ, if we're walking with Christ, if we're looking forward to joining the Lamb as his bride in the holy city and in that beautiful garden, we're called to wait obediently. And finally, we're to wait expectantly. Look at how the bride responds to Jesus' statement that he's coming soon. Verse 17, the spirit and the bride, that is the church, say, come. And let him who hears say, come. Verse 20, amen. Come, Lord Jesus. And as we look from this sort of metaphorical mountaintop with its glorious view, that should be our prayer, shouldn't it? Life may have been a climb, but wow, what a view. And we're not left on the mountaintop. Jesus is coming. He's going to come and take his people with him. We must yearn to be in that city, in that garden, with that Savior. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, in our search for security, may we look to the ultimate security of the holy city. And in our search for relationships and all our longings, may we look forward to that intimate relationship face to face with the Lamb, the Bridegroom. And in our quest for fulfillment. May our joy be in the refreshing waters of the river of life. Please give us a heavenly perspective in all the struggles of this world. And we ask it for Jesus Christ's sake. Amen.